But the, the point of this series really is not to call into question sacred verses that have meant something to us. And if you have claimed these promises in ways that are outside of their context, you're not on trial. I mean, we all are inadequate in our reading, and I'm pretty sure even the best researcher doesn't have everything they would need to know for certain what was in the heart of a prophet or an apostle when they penned any given sentence. Our job is, in my view, to do our best to come before the Word in a submitted stance, humbly asking the question, what was this individual carried along by the Holy Spirit of God trying to communicate to the people of his time, and what does it mean for me? Um, we may come to the end of these discussions not agreeing entirely about what these passages mean, uh, but my job is not to persuade you to any reading. The job of this study is to help us to better look at the context and to appreciate in a fuller way how the context needs to direct our reading of Scripture. And what a difference context really does make when we look at it closely. And these verses that I've chosen, maybe you've already done that and you have a good line of sight on them, but oftentimes verses that we pluck out and memorize uh, are taught to us when we're so young, we don't have access to the context or the resources or tools to get at it, and then those verses kind of just become floating truisms for us. They just kind of float without context or rooting, and we just sort of quote them like to use an unfair analogy, but I use it anyway, because that's me. Uh, the way witches quote spells. They work, but we don't have any idea what they mean. Sometimes memory verses are that way. And it's not that our children shouldn't memorize verses, but part of discipleship in the church is to make sure at some point what's memorized in short becomes situated in a context. Kind of like our Sunday school teachers and our parents give us pieces of a puzzle that we carry around with us. And those pieces are sacred because we know it belongs to a bigger picture and it's important to have. But until we try to sit down and build the bigger picture, that puzzle piece is, is hard to tell what's on it. I don't know if you've ever done it, looked at a piece and tried to figure out what part of the picture you're looking at. It's very hard without the rest. And that's what context does for us. So, uh, you know, if you're easily offended, you already know that I'm a terrible pastor for you because I, I'm uh, always walking all over um, sacred cows and, and whatnot. But the goal here is to help us become better readers of the scriptures. And in order to do that, we have to pay close attention to things we already think we know. One of the greatest obstacles to being good students of the word is believing we already know what we'll find before we pick up the book. At some point, we need to sit down as though we are novices and read it again for the first time. And uh, I think you'll find that that habit is a good discipline and increases our capacity with the word. So that's what I'll say by way of introduction. You can tell that last week's conversation got a bit heated, which is why I opened that way this time. Um, but I want to go over just a few preliminaries. This is review for those of you who were here last week. Uh, but we need to consider, when we think about what it means for the Bible to be inspired by God, to be God-breathed, we ask the question, what does the Scripture say about itself? What is the Scripture trying to communicate that its inspiration uh, means? And so we have some passages. I'm not going to read them. We read them extensively last week, but they're here in front of you, and you can look at them. But I'm going to point out some highlights. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul here is talking about the, what we call the Old Testament or the First Testament, the first 39 books of our Bible. At this time, though probably a lot of books of what we call the New Testament have been written, 
by the time of 2 Timothy, they have not been put together in one place, and a final 27 hasn't been decided on. So we don't really have a New Testament as we know it when Paul writes these words in 2 Timothy. So he's speaking more about the settled Bible. And at this point in history, the settled Bible are the first 39 books of our Bible. And uh, so that's just so we understand the context. And Paul says that all scripture is God-breathed, and he tells us what it's for. And what is interesting, and you can go through all the ways he says it's useful, but the fundamental assumption of Paul is that the scripture is for equipping the believer to live in the way of Jesus, to live according to what are good works. This is the purpose of the scripture, is that we might live right. And so in order to do that, he lists out the things that the scriptures do. They teach, they rebuke, they correct, and they train in righteousness. But you see in verse 17, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is important because these 39 books of the Old Testament are routinely today dismissed as less relevant, less important, less authoritative than the New Testament. But Paul is insisting that they are, in fact, God-breathed, and that they are essential if we are to live lives filled with good works. So that's important. 2 Peter 1, 19-21, Peter is wrestling with false prophets in this book primarily, and they're teaching a lot of false things. And I can only assume that they're attacking the authority of the prophets of Israel, what we have in our first 39 books, because Paul and Peter seems to have to defend them. And so two things Peter says that I just want to point out and remind us of. He says first that the first 39 books of the Bible are an interpretation. You catch that there? They're an interpretation of history. And he insists that that interpretation did not originate in the heart of the prophet who wrote it. But the interpretation came from God, and the people wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There's a lot at stake in that. So the Bible may contain history, which I believe it does, but it is not essentially history. It's essentially an interpretation of history. And when we talk about what it means for the Bible to be inspired, we have to be talking about the interpretation offered of the historical events in it. So I get very uncomfortable, for instance, when someone says to me, yeah, Israel believed that about God, but Israel was wrong. And some of you might think, where do you hear that? Everywhere. Once we do that, what we're calling into question is the interpretation of the prophets. And I just want to point out that Peter insists that's what's inspired. So that's tough. Maybe some of you are recalling to mind scriptures you don't much like either and would prefer to think of them as not very authoritative. But Peter's insisting that these interpretations the prophets are offering are coming from God as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that's important to recognize. These are just the things the Bible says about itself. Of course, we only have its testimony about it, or do we? Well, John 14 is our passage that helps us to understand why we trust the New Testament the way we do the Old. And it's because Jesus, according to John, an eyewitness to Jesus' life, because he specially set apart his apostles, promised them the Holy Spirit, promised them that the Holy Spirit would teach them all truth and remind them of all the things Jesus had said and done. Because of that promise of Jesus, the church has come to trust the recollections and the memories and the interpretations of the apostles. 
who are, they're not the ones who penned every one of the books of the New Testament, but they are the ones who provide the material for every one of the books of the New Testament. So that's where their authority seems to come from. And the only caveat that I'll, I'll make here, and I mentioned it last week, I want to make sure we get this straight. We have to be careful not to claim the same inspiration that Jesus promised to his apostles and claim it for the church today. If we do, then by the logic the early church used to set aside the 27 books of the New Testament, we would then be authorized to continue writing texts that are authoritative. And that is one of the principal differences between the Roman Catholic interpretation of these promises and the Protestant interpretation of these promises. Roman Catholics have believed that this promise is for the church and the inspiration continues to be carried through the hierarchy. Protestants have believed that these promises were for the apostles and that only they were authorized to be the source material for scripture. So we have a lot of Protestants confused about that who are Catholic in theology and think of themselves as Protestant. Now, maybe the Catholics are right, I don't know. But we should at least be aware of the distinctions between the two. So, uh, any questions about those? That's simply to say, what does the Bible say about itself? I'll share my assumptions so that you know where I'm coming from. This is true of every sermon that I preach, and it's certainly true of our Bible studies. The question I'm asking is, what is the divinely inspired author trying to say? I assume that the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is not in the words or phrases or sentences or vocabulary, but in the author who's being carried along by the Holy Spirit. For some books, it's complicated because there are more, there's more than one author. For instance, the book of Deuteronomy is, is, is positioned as being written by Moses at the beginning, but the end couldn't be written by Moses because it narrates Moses' death and then goes on to say what happens afterward. And there's nothing in the text that indicates it's prophetic. So there's at least a sense where Deuteronomy has more than one author, but that's fine. Um, we just believe that the, the prophetic tradition of Israel is inspired. And so sometimes there are multiple authors, but for most of the books of the New Testament, that's not the case. Uh, for most of the New Testament, um, we have single authors. Do you have any questions about that? I know that's a little complicated. Confusions, clarifications, opinions? Yeah, the second half is that there are some books that have multiple authors, it looks like. But that's not a problem for us because we believe the people of Israel and the prophetic tradition of Israel is inspired to interpret their history for us, carried along by the Holy Spirit. It really doesn't matter how many prophets were working on any given text. But with that said, the New Testament is mostly single authors. I and mean, we know who they are for the most part. The Gospels are an exception. We don't always know who they are because they don't tell us in their text most of the time. But um, we always know Paul's writings and so on. A few books are confusing. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, for instance, uh, because there's no author ascribed to it. Um, so there are a few exceptions. But what we have to say is that the apostles are the source material for all that is in the New Testament. And they, these books were written in a time when an apostle could have objected to anything that was in one of these books. And so if it's written after the death of the last of the apostles, the early church didn't even consider it. So... Gospel of Thomas was never seriously considered for scripture and in any tradition, except today, because it's fun to disagree. But it was written after the death of the last of the apostles, so it can't be, can't be canon. 
So, written by some folks who believe that God was continuing to inspire the church and they could receive new revelation from God long after the death of the apostles. That group of people was called the Gnostics. They're the ones who wrote those. So, so anyway, um, my assumption is that the question, what is, if we're looking at Jeremiah today, which we are, what is Jeremiah trying to say? That is Pastor Josh code for, what does God want us to hear? And if you agree, if you sort of have a sense, and I might agree with you sometimes, but very rarely, if you have a sense that the Bible can say something that the authors never wanted it to say, we can talk more about that. I disagree with that normally. There are a few occasions where that might be the case, like in prophecies, where Isaiah says some prophecies, but obviously he's not living to see the fulfillment of it. He may not be fully aware of all he's prophesying. But for the most part, I think what the authors are trying to tell us, that's the word of God. And so when I ask, what is Jeremiah trying to communicate, I'm asking, what does God want us to know? And if you say, well, Jeremiah may have meant that, but I think this can mean this, well, you know we're going to have a conflict. <laughs> and that's okay. I could be wrong. I mean, I'm human too. Uh, but as long as you know my, my assumptions. And every sermon I preach is based on that assumption, every single one, without exception. So at least you'll always know where I'm coming from. So the passage we're going to look at tonight is Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. And I, I hope it's a familiar passage to everybody. If it's not, then you're in perfect position because you have no bad habits to overcome. But for most of us, and this is certainly true of me, every time my church growing up went through a difficult time, and we used to have testimonies in our church, um, so any Sunday morning, uh, somebody could stand up and give a testimony or the pastor might even open the floor for testimonies and people would speak. And anytime we were going through a difficult time in the economy or in the life of our church, any kind of a struggle, somebody would stand up and testify this verse and claim it for our congregation. The most recent time this happened was at Nazarene Theological Seminary. I preached a sermon on an earlier part of Jeremiah that was pretty aggressive, and I preached it in the chapel service on the weekend that the Board of Trustees for NTS was there, and they were in the service, and then I was invited to a reception with them afterwards. And one of the gentlemen who was on the Board of Trustees came up to me, and he said, that was a, that was a good sermon, but I really wish you picked the best verse in Jeremiah. And I said, oh, which one is the best verse? And he said, Jeremiah 29, 11, and he quoted it to me. <laughs> so uh, he disagreed with me preaching from anywhere else because this is the one we need. And this is the passage. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Questions we're going to ask tonight is what is the occasion of that promise? What is happening when Jeremiah says it? Is it a response to something? Is it just an initiative of Jeremiah? What's happening in the life of Israel that prompts that promise from God? What's the occasion? Second question is, what was God promising precisely? What are the plans that he has for them? Does he indicate what they are? Or are they left sort of, like the way the quotation is, they're very ambiguous, out of context. Are they concrete in the context? Does the, oh, so that's my third question. And is this a corporate promise? Is it a promise to a specific group or people? Is it a generic promise to everybody, whoever will live? Is it meant to be taken by individuals? How, what, is, what is the intention of Jeremiah seem to be? Um, those are the questions we ask. Now, if you can answer all those right now, you really don't need to study. But if any of those you're not sure of, then you'll be happy you're here. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. This is the perfect time, because it's nice and warm in here, for me to read a really long historical section. <laughs> but that's what I'm going to do. So 
we're going to look at this entire story that has led up to that promise. And it starts, well, actually, we could read the whole book of Jeremiah, honestly, but I think it's sufficient to go to chapter 28. So this is chapter 28, verse 1. This is the NIV, if you felt right. So uh, here we are in Jeremiah 28. I'm going to start reading here. I'll stop a few times in case I need to update you with stuff. But In the fifth month of that same year, the fourth year, you have to obviously read the rest to know why that even matters, early in the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, Zedekiah is the last king of Judah. Um, he, his death uh, will be long and drawn out. He gets taken out of the city by um, King Nebuchadnezzar. He tries to escape. He gets chased down. His two sons are killed before him, and then they gouge out his eyes. So that was the last thing he sees, and then he's taken away to Babylon where he dies in prison. So this is Zedekiah. Ends up being the future for him. Early in the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, the prophet Hananiah, son of Azur, who was from Gibeon, uh, said to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people, and here I'll stop to say Jeremiah is a priest. He's called to be a prophet, which is unusual to have somebody who's both, but Jeremiah is a priest. And so he's serving in the temple when this prophecy is made uh, by Hananiah. And so he said to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, removed from here and took to Babylon. I'll also bring back to this place Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the other exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord. For I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. You can imagine that would be a very popular prophecy because they have just been conquered by Babylon. Their best and their brightest have been exiled uh, out to, uh, to the capital city. And uh, among these were uh, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and others who were taken. And so here a prophet comes into the temple of the Lord and he says, God spoke to me. God said that Babylon is done and that everybody's coming home. That would be great, wouldn't it? So you can imagine how popular it was. Jeremiah does not question him, but here's verse 5, uh, because he doesn't know if God spoke to him. Jeremiah is a very careful guy. Verse 5, Then the prophet Jeremiah replied to the prophet Hananiah before the priests and all the people who were standing in the house of the Lord. So here's Jeremiah. He's not questioning the prophecy, but he's asking for greater clarification. He said, Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord fulfill the words you have prophesied by bringing the articles of the Lord house and all the exiles back to this place from Babylon. Nevertheless, listen to what I have to say in your hearing and the hearing of all the people. From early times, the prophets who preceded you and me have prophesied war, disaster, and plague against many countries and great kingdoms. But a prophet who prophesies peace will be recognized as one truly sent by the Lord only if his prediction comes true. So here is... We're going to get back to that criteria. So he's put Hananiah to a point. If God spoke to you, when did he say this will happen? Hananiah then responds. Then the prophet Hananiah took the yoke off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah and broke it. Jeremiah has been wearing this yoke, saying that God wants them to bear the yoke of the Babylonians and that they will remain enslaved. And so Hananiah is disagreeing with him, claiming God told him something different. He takes the the yoke off of, off of Jeremiah, and breaks it. And he said before all the people, this is what the Lord says, in the same way I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, off the neck of all the nations within two years. 
At this, the prophet Jeremiah went on his way. So he got his prophecy. So Jeremiah now has two years to wait and see. After the prophet Hananiah had broken the yoke off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Go and tell Hananiah, this is what the Lord says. You've broken a wooden yoke, but in its place you will get a yoke of iron. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I will put an iron yoke on the necks of all these nations to make them serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they will serve him. I will give him... I will even give him control over the wild animals. Talk about doubling down, you know? So now Jeremiah goes back. Then the prophet Jeremiah said to Hananiah the prophet, Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, yet you have persuaded this nation to trust in lies. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I am about to remove you from the face of the earth. This very year you're going to die because you've preached rebellion against the Lord. Is it amazing to you that saying that God will conquer our enemies could be seen as rebellion? Is that a strange comment? But anyway, in the seventh month of that same year, the text says, Hananiah the prophet died. So Jeremiah's prophecy came true. Hananiah's did not. Now we have in verse 1 of chapter 29, Jeremiah has to now mitigate the damage. Because Hananiah's prophecy has been spread everywhere, and the people are having great hope. Matter of fact, his prophecy will eventually lead to King Zedekiah rebelling against Babylon, believing God will, will give them the victory, which is what brings Babylon down and destroys the temple, kills Zedekiah's sons, plucks out his eyes, and sends him to Babylon. That's all about to happen because of Hananiah's prophecy. So what we have next is Jeremiah writing a letter to those who are off in Babylon to tell them the truth. And here it is. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans, had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elisa, son of Shaphan, and to Gamariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, so here's his letter. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Remember what Hananiah had said. Pack your bags, folks. Babylon's going down. But here's what Jeremiah says. Build houses. Settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Have families. This is not looking good. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the prosperity, the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. And, of course, hidden in there is the idea that there will be no prophets in Babylon, which is an interesting comment since Daniel does become a prophet. Verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. 
Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. You may say, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, because they're catching this, right? God will hear them but not for 70 years. They will find him if they seek him after 70 years. And so here they might say, wait, no, God is still speaking. We have prophets here in Babylon. And this is what Jeremiah is anticipating. You may say the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, but this is what the Lord says about the king who sits on David's throne and all the people who remain in the city, your fellow citizens who did not go with you into exile. Yet this, yes, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will send the sword, famine, and plague against them, and I will make them like figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with the sword, famine, and plague, and will make them abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth, a curse and an object of horror, of scorn and reproach among all the nations where I drive them. For they have not listened to my words, declares the Lord, words that I sent to them again and again by my servants the prophets, and you exiles have not listened either, declares the Lord. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles who I am sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says about Ahab, son of Kaliah, and Zedekiah, son of Messiah, who are prophesying lies to you in my name. I will deliver them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will put them to death before your very eyes. Because of them, all the exiles from Judah who are in Babylon will use this curse. May the Lord treat you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon burned in the fire. For they have done outrageous things in Israel. They've committed adultery with their neighbors' wives, and in my name they have uttered lies, which I did not authorize. I know it, and am a witness to it, declares the Lord. So that's the end of his letter. So that's why we've stopped there. So just for the context first, to get ourselves clear, which I've already given you some of it, um, this is written and happens after there have already been two waves of ex exiles taken from um, Judah. So the first time Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and remember, Babylon's about 700 miles away from Jerusalem, so it's no short little trip, and uh, no cars or trains or, or airplanes. And so they came in, they conquered Jerusalem, and they took a wave of exiles away, pretty much the cream of the crop from the royal families and the people of any significance in the cities. They, they took them all and they brought them back to Babylon. And then they set up a king, he was a Davidic king, to rule. But that king was not willing to be under uh, Nebuchadnezzar's heel, and he believed God would set him free. So he instigated a rebellion. So Babylon came back, fought again. All this time Jeremiah is saying, if you're really faithful, you'll give up. If you're really faithful, you'll give up. And all the false prophets are saying, if you're really faithful, you'll fight. If you're really faithful, you'll fight. And of course, everybody sided with the false prophets, nobody with Jeremiah. They threw him in a cistern eventually so they could shut him up. And so Jeremiah is preaching that consistently, but the king didn't hear it. He wanted to fight. He raised a rebellion. So so Nebuchadnezzar comes back, takes more exiles, conquers the city again, takes more exiles, and then that's the second wave. Now we're here just before the third wave. And another prophet, Hananiah, has been prophesying that God will destroy the Babylonians if the people will just fight and believe and have sufficient faith. And Jeremiah again is saying, no, 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 those who are faithful will quit. Those who are faithful will surrender. Those who are faithful will live in peace with the Babylonians. What does Jeremiah look like? A traitor. That's what he looks like, and that's what they thought he was. So he took his land from him, throw him in a cistern, shut him up. 
But the false prophets are saying, no, if we have faith in God, if we turn our face toward him, he's going to destroy the Babylonians and we're going to reign victorious. And so Zedekiah raises a third rebellion. That one did it. Nebuchadnezzar is sick and tired of taking his army 700 miles to quell these things. So he destroys the city, he destroys the temple, and he wipes out the people of Israel, taking the last of those who rebelled against him, all the remaining leaders who instigated rebellion, back to Babylon, or he kills them. That's the end of the southern kingdom of Israel. So that's the context. This is where we are in the story. Now, Jeremiah's letter is written, and you can find all that history in 2 Kings 24, 8 through 25, 30, or 2 Chronicles 36, 9 to 23. Jeremiah's letter was written to correct this false prophecy by Hananiah. And I've summarized what his prophecy is. God will give us victory. That's essentially what his prophecy is. So when we get to Jeremiah's letter, where the promise that we're so familiar with is made, we ask these questions, and I'm going to let you talk about them. In this context, what was God promising? We'll read the passage, the verse, one more time, just uh, so it's in your, in your mind. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. What was God promising, here's my first question, about the conquest of the Babylonian Empire? about the conquest of the Babylonian Empire. I have plans to prosper you, but first I'm going to prosper Babylon. Right? Not only is um, Nebuchadnezzar going to become one of the most powerful kings in the history of the world, which he, he serves in that role today, but God is going to bring more nations under his thumb, he says here, verses 15 and 16 of chapter 28, and he's even going to bring... This is verse uh, 14, wild animals under his control. And how long will the Babylonians keep the Israelite people in exile? 70 years. So the time of Babylon over Israel will be at least 70 years. So these are the promises God's making about Babylon. What is he telling the people about their time in exile? How should they behave? What should they do? How should they be faithful to God during this time in which the Babylonians will be in power? This could easily be seen as a promise that God will allow them to thrive in Babylon, that they will become prosperous there. And that is exactly what happens with Daniel, isn't it? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they become prime ministers in these places, similar to what happened to Joseph. So it is true that those who are faithful to God, they flourish in Babylon but they don't flourish perhaps in the way they would want to. Daniel flourishes by being thrown into a lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego flourish after being thrown into a fiery furnace. I mean, it's not pleasant. And of course, maybe you're not aware of this. I certainly wasn't until much more recently, but Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, of course, were all castrated upon their being exiled. So they're all eunuchs, um, which I'm sure wasn't pleasant. So their prosperity is mitigated, but they do prosper. They do prosper. Yep. So... <laughs> Once we've taken a look at the context, the next question we have to ask is what does this mean? What is Jeremiah trying to communicate? I think we've done a decent job of that. And then what does it mean for us? And I want you to throw options that are appreciative of the context. And so don't feel attacked. I want you to offer interpretations. What I'm going to do 
is ask questions about those interpretations that we'll all talk about, which will help us to evaluate how strongly supported by the context those interpretations are, or what we would need to assume to make them strong. If you hear this promise, and you're just on the cusp of 70 years of exile, and you're 80 years old, what do you hear? I will never find him in my life. That's what you hear if you're 80. If you're 10, then you say, wow, I'm going to be an old man the next time we're able to really engage with God again. But this is his judgment. And the reason 70 is chosen is really significant. This comes from 2 Chronicles. You'd have to, I listed what the passage is, but you'd have to go to 2 Chronicles to see this. But when God stated, uh, the, the, uh, gave them the law in Exodus, one of the things he required them to do is every seven years, they had to let the land lie fallow. They had to rest it. Give the land a Sabbath. So Orthodox Jewish people today who farm still do this. But in, in, according to Second Chronicles, God chose the number 70 for their time in exile because they had skipped the equivalent of 70 years worth of Sabbaths for the land. They had refused to obey. And so God gives the land a 70-year Sabbath and sends them into exile for all the Sabbaths they refused to keep during their time in the land. So you multiply out. If it's one every 70 years, John, your question is really interesting because from the time of David to this exile is almost a multiple of the 70 years times 7, 490 years. So here the land is going to get a Sabbath by me sending you into exile. And I'm not going to hear your prayers of repentance to bring you back because the land is going to rest for 70 years no matter what you do or say. This is the consequence. After that, I will hear you and I will bring you back and I will reestablish you, but not until the 70 years are over. We had the same prophecy, actually, if we talk about promises God keeps making. Um, same thing was said to the Israelites when they were told they were going to be slaves in Egypt for 450 years. And only after the time of the Gentiles had been fulfilled, the time of the Canaanites, would he bring them into the land he promised them. So again, uh, God loves to make promises where, get ready, folks, it'll be a long time before you hear from me again. Listen to the prophets, read your Bibles, I'll see you. <laughs> now, he's always here, but he's not here if we can't get that immediate access. Why talk about this? Because we'll never appreciate what happens in Jesus unless we appreciate the struggle of the people of Israel. And my biggest concern with quoting these verses out of their passage is that we rob Israel of their pain. We rob them of their history. We rob them of their suffering. We rob them of all the price they paid by taking these promises and acting as though, of course, we live in the time of Jesus. Today, we can seek him and we will find him. These are the promises of Jesus in Matthew. But we, we let's quote Matthew for that. Let's not cheapen the Jews by saying, yeah, look at that promise. That can be fulfilled any minute. They think, really? Because from this point to when Jesus came, 600 years for us. And it also robs us of an important insight, which is that the Bible is full of times in which it looks like God is not speaking. It's full of it. We can get this impression that God is always talking in the Old Testament. Some of us might even romanticize it, like, man, I wish I lived in the Old Testament. It seems like they were hearing from God every day. All these prophets, 
coming and pillars of fire and smoke, miracles. I mean, now we live in this dry, dusty, materialistic, scientific world. Everybody doubts God. There's no spirit. This is an unusual moment in history. This is a strange time. Maybe God isn't even real. Because if he really was real, read the Bible, he'd be a lot more active than he is right now. This helps us to recognize that that has been the experience of the majority of the people of Israel through most of their history. That these moments in which God is highly active are rare. And they're often preceded and followed by long periods, sometimes centuries, of silence. It doesn't mean God's not there. It's about their perception. It doesn't mean God wasn't working, and I know you don't mean that. But I want to say that. It doesn't mean God isn't working. But when he's not speaking, God has to show us what he's doing. Like if we have a Hurricane Katrina, I keep using this as an example. There were a lot of pastors who tried to interpret that moment and say what God was doing with it. Was he... Is this a condemnation for our evil? Is this a condemnation for our hubris trying to bring us, build a city underwater? How do you interpret it? But the problem is if God's not sending prophets to interpret it for us, there's really no way to know. We're all just guessing what God is doing. And that's the experience of living during those dark times. It's not that God's not working. God's probably working every day in, in tons and tons of ways. But unless God tells us what he's doing, we have no way of knowing what he's doing. And so it feels to us like silence. It feels to us like God's absence. And Israel struggles with that uh, throughout their history. So we're, we're not in an unusual time. You might say that this is the average experience of people in Israel and who have followed God, that those, those moments in which God was so highly active, the ministry of Jesus, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, those initial days of the church that launched it, were, those are aberrations, really, in the history of humanity on earth. And the future is lived out of those experiences. But they, it often doesn't get to experience those same things themselves. So the first generation, this is a story that repeats itself throughout the Bible, first generation that witnesses those miracles are very, very devout. Second generation, less devout. The third generation, skeptical. The fourth generation, more skeptical. By the fifth generation, myth. And then at some point, God works again. Why? I don't know why he does that. But I, I, you have to. You can't read the Bible and not recognize that he does that. Over and over and over again. So when we have this promise, I, I want us to quote and memorize this verse. It's a spectacular verse. But I don't want us to read it the way that the prosperity preachers are preaching it or the word of faith preachers are preaching it. That God has a special plan for your individual life and God's intention is for you to prosper. And if you seek him, you will find God and prosperity, you in your life. This is an individual promise to every individual human being who has ever lived and ever will. You can take it as a national promise or as a community promise or a church promise or an NPS promise, as the gentleman wanted me to, or as your own individual promise in your life. You can preach it to your kids and tell them they follow God, they will be prosperous. That is God's promise. His plans are good for them. You will find happiness. If it's used that way, that, that's the way the prosperity gospel uh, you know, pioneers preach it. The real promise is more powerful, more relevant, 
and doesn't make God look to be a liar because it's what he was trying to say. This is a promise for those who find themselves in dark times. When the sky is black and God is not speaking, when they feel that they're alone and that the clouds will never break, and they can cling to the idea that God has not forsaken the earth and he has not forsaken his faithful ones, God will, his intention for us is good. No matter how bad or dark our lives may be, even if we die in the dark, even if we're one of those who die in those 70 years of exile and never see the promises fulfilled, we can still believe in the truthfulness of his promises. And we can hope. This is a fabulous promise if we can grab it for what it is. And this is what I'm trying to help us with. The context doesn't ruin our passages. It illuminates them. And you'll find that false teaching does more damage to the reputation of God than good teaching ever does. But on the short run, it paints a nicer picture of God. And so on the front end of these promises taken wrongly, God looks better. He's easier to sell. He's more marketable. Uh, who wants to follow a God that's going to send his people into 70 years of exile? Who wants to follow a God who's going to make his people slaves in Egypt for 400 years because of something he's doing in Canaan? I mean, who wants to follow that God? That's not marketable. We don't sell that. That's not any gospel track. You don't go to someone on the street and go, you want to follow this God? He might send you to exile. Nobody's going to do that. So we, we like to lead with very positive things. And so when we write our tracks and whatnot, we want to sell God. But sometimes we oversell. And we create an expectation that can't be fulfilled. And we do more damage to those people when life doesn't work out the way we tell them it will than if we had never come. And I think this is part of what Jesus says to the Pharisees when he says, you travel over land and sea to make a convert. And when you convert them, you make them twice a child of hell of yourself. Here we have conversion. It's not what matters. What matters is telling people the truth about God. So here is my final word. You and I, if we tell people that God made a promise that he didn't, that is the definition of blasphemy. It's what those false prophets were doing. They were telling the people things, saying God told them, and the people were believing it. And we see what God did to them for that. We had it in the New Testament too. Second Peter was actually written to confront it because there were false teachers in the early Testament church telling the people all kinds of things. And Paul keeps telling them, Peter keeps telling them, John keeps telling them the same thing. You have to listen to the apostles. Don't listen to your hearts. Don't listen to your consciences. Don't listen to your common sense. Don't listen to your culture. Listen to the apostles. We knew him. We touched him. He breathed on us. Listen. And so Paul has the arrogance to say in Galatians, if anyone preaches to you a gospel other than the one I preached to you, may he be eternally condemned. The Greek word is anathema. That's strong words for Paul. It doesn't sound like very gracious, loving stuff. But there's one thing the New Testament never has any toleration for misrepresenting God. Now, some of us may do that accidentally. And you know, we have a great promise of Jesus. All blasphemies will be forgiven men. Blasphemy against the Father, blasphemy against the Son. 
Not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We'll have to wrestle around with what that is. But if we misrepresent Jesus or God, we can be forgiven. I mean, and we probably do it inadvertently all the time. But when our eyes are open, and we know what it takes to do a little bit of research to make sure that the promises we name and claim are promises God was really making, if we've done our due diligence, I think we have clean consciences. But if we don't do our due diligence, I do think we'll bear responsibility before him for the things we say in his name. And uh, this is why I could write a sermon in four hours a week, but I insist on taking 15, because I'm terrified. I don't know how scary it is to you, but it's terrifying to me to stand up behind that pulpit and have to say, thus saith the Lord. That is the most terrifying experience on earth, because I know that one day I'm going to stand before him, and he's going to determine whether I have blasphemed. And then, I'm sure I blasphemed some, he's going to determine whether I did it out of negligence or just out of my human ignorance. And I'll, I'll stand on the ignorance, that's fine. But negligence, I don't know how that will go. Uh, I think there's a passage in James about that, and First Peter, and a uh, few things Jesus has to say about millstones and being drowned in the middle of the ocean and other things. So, so claim this promise when it's dark, when the wheels have fallen off, when the world looks like it will never be right, when something happens in our own lives that looks like the worst has just happened, and no matter what God does in the future, it will never be like what it was. That's the context in which he makes this promise. And in that context, he says, I know the plans I have for you. Trust me. And I said this in the sermon. It's one of my favorite little sayings. Sometimes we have to believe in the light while we're dying in the dark. That's living in exile. John asked one final question. Can we claim all the promises of exile for us today? I don't know. But I will say this, Peter's favorite word for the church was the exiles. So we have a little New Testament sense that the church saw Christians as exiles. So there may be a connection there. But we can only claim promises to exiles if we're convinced the New Testament encourages us to do that. That would be my take, and you have to decide whether you think so. If you're here for my first Peter series, you know that I am persuaded that Peter uses the term exile because he sees our life in this world between the times, between Jesus' uh, ascension and his second coming, as a period not unlike the Babylonian exile. I think Jesus sets it up for that, and I think Peter indicates that's the case. So I read a lot into that. But that's only because I'm persuaded Peter wants me to. If you're not persuaded of that, you shouldn't. That would be my encouragement. <laughs>